Hello, my name's Fleur Emery. Welcome to the award-winning Real Work podcast. Real Work is my online membership that democratizes business learning for women. We create content and community that will improve your confidence, knowledge and network by around 50% in as little as three months. And we know that because we've been measuring the data. The Real Work podcast brings you loose and lively conversations, very lively at times, <laughs> with women who have taken the women's work rule book and ripped it up and sometimes even used it for hamster bedding. We're here to show you what's possible for you in your own career. So have a good listen and enjoy. Now, let's find out who's coming up on today's episode. Hello. Did you miss us? We're back. It's the Real Work Podcast with a new season. This week's guest is Remy Sade, a writer, podcaster and activist whose work centres on motherhood and racial identity. In this episode, we talk about how Remy has created her own way of working using digital media and her talent for connection, for communication. Remy's voice, I always find, is bold and fresh and her views change the way I see the world. I really like talking to her and she isn't too shy to put me back in my box. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and if you do, please, please, will you go to iTunes and rate and review it. I know it's a bit fiddly, but it really helps us to get our podcast in the ears of more women like you. Here's Remy. Welcome to the podcast, Remy. Thank you. It's a while since we've spoken. We've got a bit to catch up on. I know, I know. So the point of the Real Work podcast is that um, we like to give women a different view of what's possible for them in the world of work. So it's not a business podcast of like how and why I'm so successful. It's not those stories. It's kind of um, stories of women who have found a way to work and earn on their own terms, which is what I see you doing. And um, let's go back to, I like, first of all, I like the way you always describe yourself as a writer. Thank you. We'll talk about (laughs) what that's about. But let's go back to university. You're a single mum like me, but there's a little bit of an age age chasm. (laughs) Yeah, there's a tiny one. (laughs) Although I don't feel it. I'm I'm so young, aren't I? Yeah, no, to be fair, you're a vibe. (laughs) Great, I'll take it. You um, became pregnant when you were at university. Yeah, I was 22. It's interesting because actually most people that I um, talk to don't remember that, but you always do. So because of that, it means that I feel like you have a quite a well-rounded, um, I guess, view of like my journey and stuff. Because I think a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, you had the kid and that was what you were doing. And I was like, no, it actually changed my entire trajectory of life. Because it's, it's like... At- when we're that age, this isn't true for everyone, we all mature at different ages, but when we're at that age, part part of it is like we've earned, we've, we've left home, we've worked in order to get a place at university or college or whatever, and that's the time when you sort of stretch your legs and find out who you are and you can just sit around talking about a piece of toast for a couple of days and not, you know, and just listening to something, watching kids on them. Um, 
YouTube react to Whitney Houston songs. Like that's student stuff, isn't it? That, you know, time is elastic when you're at that age, which is the opposite in my experience to parenthood. And so you, by by having that baby, you you were suddenly there but different to your student colleagues. That's what I imagine. That's what I imagine when I think about you at that time. Is that true? It is and it isn't. So I uh, left home when I was 17, actually. Um, And I've written about this, so it's no secret. But I was pregnant when I was 17. Um, And that first pregnancy was very surprising. And um, so I moved out of home when I was 17. I ended up having a termination. But that meant that I was... By the time I fell pregnant with my daughter, I knew that I would continue the pregnancy. Yeah. I knew I had I knew I had choices as well, which was really important. But it's interesting because I still went into parenthood thinking that like I've chosen this, I know what I'm doing, which was not the case. And so um as a result of that, I kind of felt like my life wasn't really gonna change. But at the same time, I was terrified of the unknown. Um so I went to uni until I was about nine months, like 36 weeks. I think that's nine months. Um, and I went back. Isn't that when the baby's supposed to come out? Yeah. <laughs> and nine and, well, nine and <laughs> a half months, yeah. Buckers, so. hasn't, Buckers hasn't got a kid. And so she's looking at you thinking, I'm sure that. Isn't that cooked by Yeah, then? so 40 weeks is a full-term pregnancy, okay. which is 10 months. So you gave yourself the weekend off? Yeah, genuinely, I did. What a luxury. (laughs) I was so scared and and I kind of had my head a little bit in the sand and I knew I was going to become a parent. But also, like you said, I was around other students. And so even my pregnancy experience, I would say in a social sense, was quite different to expectant parents who are a bit older, even if it is a surprise, or or even younger parents who've planned, you know. So that was quite an interesting experience. And it it definitely changed things. But then I would say because I've been pregnant before, I kind of had some sense of what I was choosing to do. And I'd been living alone for five years. Oh, yeah, I didn't know, yeah. Yeah, so... So you were capable, you knew you were capable. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I knew I was... Well, no, I didn't know I was capable. I knew I was capable of surviving. And I knew that, you know, I'm going to have a kid and that's going to be a responsibility. I had no clue what I was going to do, though. All I knew was that I didn't want to drop out of university. The only plan that I had was to stay in university. So... By the time she was one, I had dropped out and I'd also started my new career, which I had no plan for. And at the time, I didn't know that it was going to be a career. I was petrified. Did the university support you? No. No, my university actually uh, told me that I had to unenroll off of the course if I intended to take maternity leave. And then there's a pretty incredible organisation... Uh, yeah, there's a really incredible organisation who today have done some big things and changed the law. But at the time, they were quite grassroots. And so I went to them and I explained the situation. And they said to me, um, higher education is kind of regarded the same way as you do with employment laws, because there are no specific laws for higher education. However, universities do have their own policies, which are kind of treated like bylaws. So I checked my university's maternity policy and the first line said something to the effect of, we will never obstruct a student's education and we will do everything to support them and keep them in education. So basically, in the end, my uni gave me a free year of tuition. So even though I dropped out, my my student debt is 
a year's tuition less than everybody else's because I basically wrote to them and I was like, this is like discrimination. You can't make me leave because I'm having a baby. Also, there were like breastfeeding facilities on site that they didn't want to open up access to because they'd never had, it, it was quite a new building. So they'd never actually had a student need to use the services that they said they provided. Um, they had to change certain things for my exams. They had to get me certain seating and all those kind of things. So it was quite it probably wasn't actually quite a big adjustment because they had thousands of students, but it felt like a big adjustment. And I was, you know, the pregnant girl at uni, um, which was an interesting experience. For the most part, people didn't really bother me. They just stared. Um, And then I guess also people wondered if it was like, I'd just fallen pregnant at uni. The person that I fell pregnant with was like a long-term partner. And obviously, as I said, I'd lived out of home for so long. So I think people assumed I looked quite young. People assumed that I was like, you know, living in my parents' bare bedroom and I'd just fallen pregnant. And like, I had no clue what was happening. Um, And I think my uni assumed that as well, because they didn't really ask me any questions. And when they did, it was very... um, with an edge, it was it was slightly like that. But then, you know, when they wrote to me and said, you know, we've realised that you were right and actually we can't ask you to leave, then they said, you know, like, as a gesture of goodwill, we also would like to award you a year's worth of tuition. As long as you um, never discuss it on um, an award-winning podcast. Oh, well, they never said that to me. And to be fair, I would no, never I know, but agree it mirrors, to it, The point I'm making is that what you're describing mirrors corporate situations, doesn't it? Because you, you, what you're describing is someone who had the appearance of someone who's sort of young and naive. You spoke up. They sort of brushed you, patted you on the head and brushed you away. And then you came back and you and sort of said, "Oh, maybe um, just there's this. So this maybe it's discrimination." And they're just, "Oh yes, sorry, yeah. Well, seat. yeah. No, I quoted. <laughs> we went back yeah, and forth right. for a while. That's... We went back and forth for a while, and I would say we went back and forth for about four months on this. And then it was actually through the power of social media and you know me working online that I was exposed to so many, so many women. And I think you know this is a huge benefit. I don't, I don't." really see many people talk about this from my perspective as a younger parent but I think there's so much power in talking to parents who had their children later in life partially because the experience in terms of the rest of life that you have and when it comes to professional environments and and corporate environments and all those kind of things I've learned so much from parents who have had a career and kind of had to navigate all of these situations and it helped me so much because in those moments I I basically went on Instagram and I was like guys I'm getting kicked out of uni because I had a baby like but I I could have sworn that you can't do that I swear this is like not it's like, okay. this doesn't seem is this okay I <laughs> mean then, this isn't feels yeah right from where everybody, I'm standing. I had so many messages from other student mums who were like yeah like you know th- there's no laws on higher education and pregnancy there's just no laws on it so then I finally found out okay it's because they basically use employment laws and employment and social laws it's kind of like that middle ground so yeah in the end I mean I don't even think about it that much this is probably the longest I've spoken about it since it happened which is like nearly five years ago now but um yeah no my university weren't supportive um do you think they'll invite you back when you get the booker prize uh never <laughs> no, I highly <laughs> doubt it I don't I don't name them I wouldn't do that no no it's not but it's interesting until also who we might name however 
the organization, the um, law changing organization. Pregnant men screwed. I didn't know insane. if I was allowed to say their yeah, name. Let's do that. They're, I mean, incredible. I've, yeah. I've done a couple of bits with them um, many years ago when they were doing their festivals. Jolie's incredible. The work that they do is, you know, really helpful. And when I reached out to her, I think she was maybe one of like two or three people at the time. And she basically gave me all the information, sent me all the links, told me where the government say this, that, and third, what to quote and how so to put it. And, and, you know, she saved me nine grand off of a student loan. That, Great, like, thanks very much. I, you know, I, didn't even, I didn't even end up completing my degree, so I'm quite grateful for that as well. Um, but it also taught me about what it means when you have access to information. Yeah. And also it taught me that they they royally messed up, probably more than I had realised. Um, and so when I'd said what I'd said to them, I probably didn't realise the gravity of it, but they did. And we're taught to be, we're, you know, we're, we're trained to be grateful. So when they say, have a, you know, have a year's free on us. So it's like, oh, wow, okay then, great. Instead of actually thinking, wow, they must really be at fault here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I didn't have the energy, you know, at the time. No, no, was, of course, of course. I was like... And maybe that felt like a fair deal. I always say, in real life, we always say, like, uh, a deal like that is looks different on any given day of our life. Like, if you're offered, you know, five grand's worth of tuition or whatever, on on one day it might be like, screw you, I'm taking you to court because you've got the space and the capacity and the money to do that. And on another day it's just like, oh, my God, that's a lifeline. So it's on any given day. Yeah, I mean, I don't... Well, I knew it's interesting because... By the time they'd sent it me, sent it to me, I'd already decided I wasn't going to continue the degree. So I knew it would just, you know, it would take a, a chunk off of my student loan debt. But I knew that to my day to day life, it would make absolutely no difference. But it would just put an end to the whole situation. But I'd already decided at that point. I was just discouraged. There were so many other things going on in my life as well, and. Yeah, it was, I think that at that point, I was really terrified about what I was going to do in life. Although you had built up um, with your um, books, Baby and Back blog, about your experience of being um, a student mum, you had, you'd really connected with quite a few people online. And that was at the sort of the, the early days of blogging. And they, they, what, did you see potential in that before you jumped ship and left uni? No. Right. <laughs> oh, God. I was like... Oh, with hindsight, we can, though, right? With hindsight, we can look back and say that in a in some kind of way, you were like a... You had a, the beginning of a public profile without realising it. I wish that I had foresight. I am not a foresightful person. I don't, I don't think you needed know. it. You're doing I, a great yeah, job I mean, without it. I don't it. even know if that's a word, but I, I would say I think I'm not a foresightful. I've got a, I live in hindsight. I learn so much from the past. I had no clue what I was doing, but I did know that if I couldn't go to classes, then I couldn't be at uni. If I couldn't uh, be supported to learn online. I mean, it's incredible because now with COVID, it's interesting because now... I can't imagine a university requiring... No, 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 no. 
It's like from before they were like, um, we can't educate online. We definitely can't. No, we can't do that. There's no way. We don't understand. And then they're like, oh, yes, we can do this. Way. We can do everything online, apparently. We can do this all suddenly so... overnight. Everything's kind of action. It's like, oh, okay, fair enough. I was going to uni in the pre-COVID era of technology. And so it's interesting because I was studying quite a scientific tech-based degree and they still <laughs> couldn't do it. Um, so, yeah, I know I, I had no idea what. I didn't even know I was doing a career or anything like that. But what I did know, I was very, very poor. And what I did know was that if I was going to drop out of uni, I needed to be in a space where I could in some way add add value to my life or my child's life. And I knew that being, I'd never been in a space where you can have a career like being a professional parent. And uh, five years ago, Instagram and the parenting world was a very different place. And you could genuinely start a career being a parent. And, you know, there were positives and negatives when it came to that. But it also meant that I could take my child to activities and events in half term, which would occupy her. And they were free and they were really fun. And, you know, in terms of just lifestyle, that was important to me. And things like, you know, I'll just be really honest, but things like if you get invited to a press day with a brand who sells shoes and you don't know if you can buy shoes for your kid's birthday or something, but they give vouchers because of the time of the year that it is to every single attendee, it's a very different way to exist. And I think there was, not even I think, I know there was no difference to me and a lot of other single parents who are working class and also, um, you know, trying to make ends meet except for the fact that I had access to like a really um, closed part of parenting in terms of how it showed up in London. And it was, it was, I don't know how to describe it except for like the parenting scene. It was, it was. I mean, the way you're just, what you're describing the life of a, um, like an influencer or um, a micro blogger with sponsored content that, that sort of job that you're describing, you're describing it as if you don't think, as if there's some kind of framework that we shouldn't approve of it anymore. I... What's this about? <laughs> Let's unpack it. Let's unpack it. Right? I... You're talking about it like, well, I did that and here's my rationale for it. And, you know. I, to be honest with you, I don't think that, I, I think it was really hierarchical. I think it was really reflective. Okay. I think it was also really reflective of everything oppressive in this world. I think that when you look Ooh, at- everything. Yeah, everything. <laughs> oh my God. I know, quite a strong opinion, but I think <laughs> when you look at the structure of hierarchies in, in, you know, in terms of how that affects people at the bottom and people at the top and the grading systems and all those kind of things, I think it was like, you know, it was a really elite world. Everything was done in a private members club. You can't just walk into these places. You have to be invited in. But also, most of the people in those spaces that I was around didn't, in my opinion, need the socioeconomic leverage that they could have gained from it in, in the way that there are people in so many other environments and walks of life who could benefit from it. And I think in, you know, in a, in a place like London where inequality is big. I grew up in London as well. So the whole concept of being a single parent online who is who goes to these events and does these things is very different to the concept if I was just a single mum on benefits who was young. The way that I would be viewed is like worlds apart, you know, and I didn't like that. I didn't like that because I lived in Brixton and I lived in Brixton because I was 
raised there, not because I had moved there due to gentrification. And so I think I was, my everyday reality was something that was familiar to me and the whole idea that, and not everybody, by the way, in these parenting groups was like, you know, untoward or any of those things, but it just, it didn't make sense to me. And I didn't understand why it had to be a, like only certain people and only in certain places. That just, I didn't understand why we couldn't open up this space. Is it not? Is it? I mean, I yes, I agree. With you. Of course, I agree with you. But let's just flex it a bit. Remy, you were there because you are a storyteller, and people like your style and your funny and you say things that people are you know you're fearless so in all, that's a talent right that's a that's an asset that you have so by they're inviting you in and paying you in shoes and cash and whatever because they're buying your you're the talent right in that situation isn't that an old isn't just like being on the tv i know i have i have to disagree i feel like <sighs> they didn't invite me because I'm talented or any of those things I think I was comfortable my version of the intersections that I cover was palatable and I think you know also in terms of talent I I always have to say talent on whose standard some of the most talented people I've ever met some of them can't read some of them can't write most people that I think are talented are neurodiverse and in terms of um, the demographics that those environments attracted, the other thing is, yes, you could be invited. The other way you could get in is you can pay, you can buy a ticket, you can show up. You can. So there are other ways, but you have to also still have the means. So there's something cynical to you. So the brand's approach, the, the way that the system was working. No, I don't even think it's, it's not, it's not just the brand. It never is ever. And that's the thing. It's a system. And that's why I say it's reflective of everything that's wrong with this world, because you can't pinpoint it and say it's one person or one thing you have to look at the structure and the system and the space that you're operating in and I think what I would say is I was allowed to stay because of my talents but I wasn't invited in because of them I could have nobody knew nobody knew where to place me or really what to think of me and I think I was allowed to define myself which can be hard especially when you know you're in an unfamiliar environment with people you don't know Sometimes it's hard to feel confident enough to do those things. But yeah, I think that was something that I knew what I was doing to a degree, but I also didn't. And, you know, um, you it, it all looks it, originally, you know, when you go into these spaces, it all looks like a space for mums to get together and connect. That is it. That's all it comes across as. But at the same time, you know, there was a day where I went to a coffee morning for mums with postnatal depression and everybody was talking about their various experiences and a few of them had spoken about the things that made them you know uh, have a breakdown and one woman spoke about her husband wanting to take her children skiing and her wanting them not to go and him basically saying well I don't see why they can't go like we pay for their education we'll pull them out of school it's not a problem and she said that was really hard for her everybody's experience is relative She then went on to speak about how she wanted this space to be accessible to all types of people from all walks of life. And a few other women shared their experiences. This coffee morning was at a big beauty brand's headquarters. And I said, I just said, I'm going to be honest with you. This is not an accessible space. First of all, most people don't even know that this building is here. The regular person doesn't know that this building is here. So therefore, there's that. Number two is... 
this is a space that is only open to the people who know you. Number three is that like, when I have a breakdown, I have a breakdown because I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills, like, or feed my child or, well, not feed my child. I think that's pretty extreme, but I mean, feed my child long-term, you know, I think as well, when we look at the economic experience of parenthood, where you start has such an effect on how you parent and what you can do and what you believe you can do and even like your mental health. So yeah, we all had different experiences of postnatal mental health, but we didn't have those experiences from the same place. It wasn't an equal playing field and we weren't having an equal conversation. And I think that's okay as long as you can acknowledge it. And I think those spaces a few years ago, there was a struggle to really acknowledge the differences because this was pre-BLM, this was pre-allyship, this was pre-activism, this was when everybody was a little bit more reserved, I would say. And reserved slash defensive. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say defensive. Wow, because... <laughs> I think I was very defensive in those days. Yeah, like, no, oh, no, I mean... No, no. <laughs> I know... Do you know what um, um, Ashanti Bentil do, who is a, um, a diversity, actually inclusion professional, came into real work this morning and she did a presentation and she was talking about having difficult conversations. And the first thing she said straight out of the gates was, because this is the first time she'd met everyone, is this is not a safe space. And I was like, hang on. And she was, yeah, so she framed it right from the beginning saying, but you don't know me. We're going to talk about some quite deep stuff. You don't have to dive in because you don't know me. This is maybe just the beginning of a conversation. You don't have to have it with me. You don't have to have it here, but I'm just going to bring you some information. And it's framing that thing, isn't it? Instead of, yeah, instead of presenting something, presenting an environment as something that it's not. Your, your understanding of that, that we only realise things when we realise them, right? We know things when we know them. So for a while, that opportunity, just like we said at the beginning of this, an opportunity can look different on any given day. When you were just thinking, right, how am I going to support my kid? You know, I've left university. What am I going to do? The kind of incoming offers must have felt very welcome and must have felt like, wow, well, that was a kind of an, an okay day. And then it changes over time, doesn't it? You just think, oh, actually, I'm not sure. It was interesting because it wasn't what it seemed. Like, black girls weren't getting paid. We weren't getting offers the way that everybody else was at that time. Oh, the racial we, thing as well, yeah, yeah, no, 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 definitely. There was, that was a thing. It was more so about, in those days, the words were exposure, opportunity and networking. I always think when I hear the word exposure like that, I always think of flasher. <laughs> My kid has learnt the word flasher from the hairspray soundtrack. She asked me what it was. What's a flasher, mum? Difficult questions with small kids, aren't there? Some really difficult ones. I said, uh, someone who shows you, who pulls their trousers down and shows you their penis to try and frighten you. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay, what's for lunch? Sorry, we always do very, very dodgy segues on this podcast. No worries. So, um, yeah, so that was, it was a different experience. But, you know, after about two years, I got my first paid job. And then, you know, things changed from there a bit. Tell us how they changed. First of all, like, like let's cap it off. I've sort of taken some of this lightly, which we do on this podcast. We sort of bounce things around. Um, you know, that's quite dark, the situation you're explaining. And... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry it was like that. I'm glad that things are changing. And tell us how your career, how you moved on from that. 
Um, well, to be honest with you, that was like an ongoing, you know, when people work in different industries, even if they get a new job or they move to a new company, it's like, I used to say we're in the world of, I guess, parent blogging, influencing or anything adjacent to that. Instagram is essentially the building that we work in. So if you think that you are the office and there are people that, you know, like there are so many different departments and it's one of the most liberal places to work because you can just choose what department you want to work in on what day. So there is that side of things, but also it's still the same building. So um, I would say that my roles changed. I started writing more for others as well. Um I started podcasting, which was really helpful because people didn't really know my personality when I was in those spaces. I was quite. We did then. We did when <laughs> yeah. you did the podcast, yeah. for me. So I, and so the power that... not as serious as we thought. Are you with me? <laughs> well, yeah. Before I did the Bit podcast, naughty. people people thought that I was, you know, quite quiet. And I'm. I have opinions about things, but I also, you know, as um as the lady said in earlier on, this is not a safe space. I, I don't go into unsafe spaces and treat them like they are anything but that. So, you know, you be quiet, you learn what you can, you meet people who you get along with and, you know, you share experiences and grow like that. I kept podcasting, which was good. And then talking. And then my activism is interesting because actually for people who know of my work now, they feel like that's the latest part of it. But for people who've known me for a long time... That, that is who that you is are. the only thing that's been consistent in my career. Um, everything else is subject to change, you know. But in terms of the topics that I discuss and the things that I discuss and the way in which I discuss them, I'm very fact-based. That's really important. With a side of opinion, but fact-based. And, fact, and opinions based on those facts. Um, so you can draw a different conclusion if you want to. That's fine. We all have different perspectives. But that has been something that really um, shaped what I do on a more consistent basis now. Um, and then I started to build relationships with brands that I enjoy working with that were very ethical and respectful and understanding. And I think as much as, you know, I have loads of different feelings and opinions about the whole like conversation surrounding BLM and how it happened and when I do think something that was positive is that if you did create or forge a relationship that was new during that time, you got to start it really honest. Everybody was being really, there was a really real frankness that allowed any relationships have gone on for me since then to be um, quite transparent, which is really nice and and quite helpful. Um, And it's a nice way to work as well. Yeah, we had... um... Uh, a fashion professional, Shopi Delano, on the um, podcast. She's also kind of a friend of real work. And um, I was asking her about that, and I was asking about the difference before and after BLM and about um, people like me sort of suddenly waking up and starting to do the work and what was that What was that like and was it annoying, basically? And she said something lovely. She said, it helped me to have, like, deeper relationships with white people. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, having having better professional and personal relationships. I would say for me now, it feels like it's basically gone back to what it was before. I feel like people, I'd say some people are doing the work and I can, you know, you know, you can see like we've always, but also we've kind of always been able to see who's doing the work and who's not. So there's that. But I think it's interesting when I deal with uh, anybody in any professional capacity or I see them about online, even if we don't personally deal with each other. And I remember what it was like back then and how they were dealing with things. And then now, you know, just looking at that comparison. And also 
I do check what people, if I'm going to work with somebody new, I do check what were you doing in the summer of 2020, if you, especially if you're online. If there's no trace of anything, okay, no problem, noted. And likewise, if there is a trace of something then, but it's not there now, noted. So I think that the main thing is consistency because we're consistently experiencing these things. And I think what might be hard for some people who did the work that summer and got tired to understand is that there have been hundreds more of those situations. It's just that that was the one that shook the world. And that is just, that's just the truth. That was the one that shook the world. But when people ask me about my career now, I always, you know, I have to be honest and I have to say George Floyd died and that changed my career. And I think that any person who did any form of activism or even spoke during that time whose career was affected in any way to not discuss that. I think it's, I think I understand why people don't like to talk about that because it feels kind of like sickly and gruesome, but it's the truth. That is, that is the truth. People got guilty and people were more open to listen and we were all kind of, you know, trapped in our houses and stuck on our phones. And so the conversations that a lot of people of all races and genders and, and different walks of life were having, it just felt like it was a more connected conversation at that point. It was like we were having a conversation together instead of in small groups or separate parts. But that that was what, you know, changed my career as well. And that was hard for me. That was really hard for me. Um, it was hard for me because I didn't say any of those things or write any of those things for people to come and listen I was talking to the people who were already there and who were already listening and I knew that whether or not people were doing the work or they were allies anybody who engaged with my platform that was from a privileged group whether that be racially or gender-based or anything else I knew that they knew that we were constantly having the conversation of privilege we were constantly having the conversation of um, difference as well and you know we that wasn't a secret so when I started having that conversation again I didn't think anything different would come of it and you know it, it just so happened that it did because of the time but it's hard because you know I wonder now like is this going to keep happening is is that going to be the way of I guess our business practices I think across the country, across the world, changed so much, partially for the better, but also for the better for a short period of time, you know? And so some people are now committed and they've understand, like, we have to restructure what we're doing forever. But some people got tired. And that's, I think, you know, that's an interesting thing to take note of as well. Um, and to just see the differences as to even how people talk to you, like your emails, are my emails in June 2020 were the most caring I had ever had in my life <laughs> like I you know when we talk about whenever I talk to people and I say like you know we shouldn't joke about this but when we talk about like being um an ethical company and checking up for people's mental health all you need to do is go back to the emails of 2020 and look at what everybody said to black people during that time the care that we had now just remove the race element and talk to people like that talk to your customers your peers and your clients like that because genuinely you will get such better results but um it's really interesting now because then when you deal with somebody and it's like super professional and you're like hang on a second you were asking if I was all right <laughs> like a year ago so that's like there are some things that like you can take from it that like they just amuse me quite a bit um, but on a whole, that's kind of how my career is like changed. Um, and I, I'm a creative, so I also 
I write, yes, but I I don't call myself a writer anymore. So when you said that, that's why I laughed because I was very sure of calling myself a writer. You were. I was very sure of that for a really long time. And then in June of this year, I also went on like a homegoing trip. I was making film and I was writing. So I went to Lagos, which is where I my saw. dad's family is It was from. lovely to see the images from that trip. That like, I mean, I have so much footage and writing and stuff that I just haven't shared because I'm like still sifting through it and that changed so much for me as well, that whole process and coming back. Um, but I realised that I was making film for about a year before then and I was writing and, you know, I enjoy it. But I think what I would say is like literature is my chosen medium of art, but I would call myself more of like an artist than a creative at the moment. And it's just because, yeah, I write and I'm good with words, but I've not written a book and I had a book deal and I dropped my book deal and went to Lagos all in like the same day, which is crazy. So after that, I was like, hang on a second. If you've really made this decision, I think you need to think about everything. Um, so if you've, if you've got a book deal, you can get, you know, you can get a book deal. So just because you didn't deliver that book and get and finish that book and get paid for that book, it means that, you know, just take take it easy. Just see. I didn't see. do that book. I, I know the kind of book I want to write and that book wasn't by the end of me deciding, you know, not to do it, that book wasn't it. But it's interesting because actually I don't have a, this is what I do, this is how I built my career. But what I can say is I've had days where I've said yes and I've had days where I've said no. And I've also had days where I've said, I want that. <laughs> and I've had days where I've said, I'm not going to do that. And I think when I say that, what I mean is there's been days where it's like, we talk about things you know, being brought to us and we can say yes or no. And then there's sometimes where we have an idea and we choose to follow through on something or we feel like we don't want to do something. I think that's have really you, important. Would you like to write a novel? Um, I would, yeah, I would. I, I'd write anything as long as it makes me feel good. I have a few things that I started writing. One of them was a novel, yeah. It was like... Have you read that one? Have you read My I Sister? Have, yeah, I oh, have it. Oh, it's so good, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? I just bought it in my What's that, Fleur? My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyen Kimbrefa. She's on Instagram and she's really accessible. I, I, I messaged her and I said, look, I just really love your book. I've just... literally got that book. She is good. She's. I mean, the stories that she writes are really good. And... She has such a different view, doesn't she? And she, it's so conversational that you can really hear the people speaking when she, when she speaks. Um, Buckers, I'm not going to put any spoilers in, but it's about a, um, a woman and her sister and her... Yeah, her sister is really hot and sexy, which is um, yeah one of your subjects, isn't it? Getting your sexy back. Um, the sister's really sexy and has all these boyfriends and then keeps bumping them off, keeps murdering them. And then the sister, the other sister, who's like the older sister, really hardworking and not as appealing to him. He has, she has to kind of cover the tracks to stick up for her sister. It's about, you know, any story of like sticking up for your sister. But the, and, and the way the way the murderer's sister shrugs it off, it's like, look, he was a nice guy, but, you know, he did this thing and so I had no choice. It's just so wild. It's so good and it's funny. It's, it's like shocking. It's insightful. It's also really easy to read. It doesn't ask too much of you, does it? It gives a lot. The way the way she writes gives a lot. It, she doesn't have loads of preamble and scene setting. By 10 minutes in, she, you're sat up like going, 
okay, I'm in. Is it one of those ones where it makes you kind of, you're on the side of somebody who is committing yes. pretty terrible crimes, a bit like Dexter? It's kind of a bit like that. Yeah, it's so good. So I can I can really um, see you writing a book like that. That's why I asked. Yeah, I mean, I, I... who knows? Who knows? I think where I'm at in my career right now is a big question mark. Um this is the first time that I've not had like myself dead set on wanting a certain thing. Um, one of the things that I did want, interestingly, was a book deal, um, but it wasn't. That wasn't the best fit. And I think something for me that is really important is ensuring that, you know, I don't like waste a publisher's time or I don't write something that's not up to standard. That's really important to me. So. We will see what the future holds in terms of writing in that way. But, I mean, I will definitely keep writing films. I, I enjoy making short films. It's easy. It's fun. Um, I hope that I can, like, I don't know, do, like, an artist in residence or something one day. But I, I'm I'm curious. I'm as curious as everybody else. From the beginning of my career, everybody's always asked me, what's next or what do you want to do? And I've always had an answer for, like, what I want to do, and I've never known what's next. And now I genuinely have no answer for anything, and I don't know. And I think that the reason people have always asked is because it looks like I know what I'm doing or it looks like I'm going somewhere, but I, I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing or specifically where I'm headed. But there's a certain level of traction that I've always had. There's a certain level of like, okay, something's always coming along or just happened or figuring itself out. And so I think I feel like I'm a spectator too, watching this all as well. Um, so I don't know. Well, why are people so fascinated with your life? I don't think people are fascinated with my life or maybe they are, I don't know. Well, why I think... are they they're following you? They're, 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 they're waiting yeah, well, that's the thing. Say. I don't know, but I feel like if if this was like I don't know a story or something, I would probably be like, guys, you know, we're halfway through the story, and actually, it's re regular, it's normal. I think there's something about the way that I live my life, which I've chosen to do, which it seems extraordinary, and it's not. It's just finding your version of extraordinary in your way. And so I think I feel quite settled and comfortable finally in my life. But I've always had a an energy of like, I'm going to do this thing, whatever it is. And I think, you know, the fact that I'm willing to say that as well. I I have things that, you know, like I get nervous that, you know, to say or think I think about. But I still try to share as much as possible in a way that I'm comfortable with. Like, there are things I'm private about, but, I, you know, I try to be honest. And so even... I don't know, random things like I really want to buy a boat or a bus and convert it into a, like a mini motorhome. And that's something that I've shared online. And I know that everybody who follows me who is interested in that, if they're still following me in 10 years, they're curious as well as to whether or not I will actually do it. And I think that there's something about that that people appreciate. And, I, you know, I don't work to live. I live no, I don't live to work. I work to live. So because of that as well, it's like, my job is not important. I know that people, that's a really big thing for a lot of people, a career. But for me, my job is not important. What is important is whatever I'm doing, being able to support the things that fill me up and the things that I enjoy doing. And so I say that, you know. And what you're describing is the life of an artist for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, then, yeah, I was going to say, I don't really ever plan 
to be paid to write, but I plan to be paid for the other things that I do. Those are my jobs, you know. There are things that I'm better at than others and I enjoy and, you know, those are my jobs, but I make art because I make art and I like it and it it moves me, people move me. And, you know, I feel like I'm almost like an anthropologist and I like collect bits of people and share bits of myself in exchange. And it's a really nice, a nice thing that I enjoy doing, but I wouldn't describe it as a part of my job. Um, And I think, you know, artists do reflect the times. Like Nina Simone has a piece of, I don't know, a piece of footage where she says the artist's duty is to reflect the times. And I do believe that if you choose to be somebody who shares your art with the world, then your duty is also to reflect the times and to to document them. But actually, the times are made by people. Like, the planet does its own thing. We've all learned that we have no control over this planet, and when we try to, it does its own thing. The thing that is the trends and the times and the thing that makes the fabric of our lives is people and ourselves. And so I think by documenting that and my version of it, it makes people interested because they know that even if they just get me, they get me that week who did this thing or spoke to this person or, you know, I don't know. But I, I also wonder how sustainable it is. There's, there's that. <laughs> I'm curious if, oh, heavens forbid, I end up in like a really corporate environment when I'm 45. It's not going to happen. <laughs> like I worry about, I worry about it all the time. Nina Simone's think... a brilliant example of some of the things we were talking about because she almost hated her audience she almost you know she w- watched them observing her and how much they wanted to watch and listen and what she was prepared to give and what she had to give was kind of at odds with it and being a black woman musician at that time in america there was she didn't fit into a lot of the, the tropes that women performers were supposed to meet because she was so intense and her voice was deep and um, her looks weren't particularly feminized. And so she kind of, she was like a force of nature, but there was kind of... Um, yeah, she was of Yeah, a there was a tension. Time. There was so much tension, wasn't there, between her and the audience. And I think that's, that's why it's important to document things because she didn't fit, as you said, she didn't fit Eurocentric beauty yeah. standards, but she, now we know she fits so many other standards, including beauty standards. It's just that at that time she was ahead of it. She was in a different space. She just knew who she was. Like that. that's kind of the thing that's i think the charisma of knowing of of a person knowing who they are apart from the fact that you know musically she was a genius as she would you know she um, she shot her neighbor didn't she in france for interrupting yeah she did she she shot her neighbor for interrupting her piano practice um, which i don't we don't recommend that on the real work podcast that you shoot your neighbors but um yeah she was an absolute um she was a unique a unique performer but how her audience came to her for something and because she was so herself she couldn't resist confronting them with the reality of the situation they're all living in and 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 singing songs you know singing songs like alabama goddamn you know the the words in that song and it's so funny and she serves it up and it's the you know it's just about horrendous things that were going on all around them there's there there are listen there's some I'm comparing you to a genius, Remy. So let's just go with that. Just take it. Just eat it up. 
But um, there, there, you know, there's some there's some comparisons, and it's completely true what you say, you know, about just reflecting the times, and maybe that's that's why we love, you know, listening to what you write and see the choices that you make and how you speak up, you know. It, it, it gives us it's inspiring, right? It's exciting for me. It's super important to ensure that I don't get so attached to an audience that I can't create art. So I kind of look at my audience, and you know, I take regular breaks and I don't mean social media breaks I just mean breaks in general from it from all of it yeah and that's when I go into a really deep and creative space sometimes and partially it's because I can't create from a place of trying to share something I create from a place of like yeah. this is just in me this is what it is and then I share it when it's complete um but I don't like to share my work in progress and things like that because you know, it's so delicate as well. And also I'm very, very grateful to the fact that the audience that I have trust me. Like they share some really personal things with me on a very regular basis and with each other. Because when when I talk to the people who have followed me for X amount of years and I say, you know, what are you guys up to this week? How's it been? And if you want to check in, I'm down to chat with you. And somebody's like, my marriage just fell apart. And somebody's like, I'm pregnant and I'm so excited and I haven't told anybody. And somebody's like, I watched your thing about love and it resonates because everything's fine, but I feel like things aren't. And, you know, so it comes from like, that's what I'm saying. It's something about the way that I do things feels extraordinary and it's not but it's just that it's documented and I think I can write beautifully about some of the most regular things and somebody would say afterwards oh my gosh you know I never thought of it like that and it is really nice and so I don't I don't think my life is ever going to be something that like you put on a tv and you think wow but I think that for me it will always be something that was worth the time that it took it was worth the experiences that I had and I feel like that about other people's lives too and I don't always feel like they feel like that about them but that doesn't mean that it's not worth you know a document because like I think people make the world you know because we've whirled you one over time as you sorry <laughs> no, no no it's my fault because I'm just listening and I'm just so happy to see you haven't you haven't talked <laughs> every for ages. word is I worth know. it not a single word <laughs> wasted <laughs> Thank you for sharing so openly, as always. I did accidentally drop the word inspiring in, which I always promise that I won't do because that's on our list of um, podcast bingo, things that you're not supposed to say. I'm not supposed <laughs> to say inspiring. I'm not supposed, not supposed to say amazing because that's like a thing women say on or podcasts, exciting. isn't it? Oh, that's, I'm so excited to I'm see so my guest. Oh, this is so amazing. <laughs> I didn't oh, you're know so inspiring. No, no, it's fine. You don't have to inspire us. Um, but um, I'm grateful that you joined us. Thank you for sharing. And um, if people want to find out more about what you're doing and keep up, what should they do? You can sell them something at this point. Oh, I have nothing to. to sell them at oh, this point. Come on. Okay, come on, so, surely there's something down so, the back of the sofa. Give them a coupon. No, I the, the thing the <laughs> the thing that I'm enjoying doing at the most is creative work and consultancy work. So just contact me. Um, okay. The creative consultancy they want work. Your is... view on the world. If they want a bit of your um. Reminisce in their creative project At, oh, the past year I've done it for a few different companies so I've done like internal corporate talks which are really interesting because I'm like this is so not my world but hi guys and um 
And they'll look at you jealously because you can leave afterwards. I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting. And then I've done also some like, um, which was really interesting, business analyst roles and business strategist roles, which I didn't even know I could do. So that was really interesting. And they were like, we want to bring you on board. And the brand have said that blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what, really? Okay. So Remy Sade is available for highly paid creative business <laughs> analyst roles. Yeah. Okay? So I enjoyed yeah, that. that. And bit, then that recently bit. that, I mean, and I was working with a brand in the US and like Scandinavia. So it she's was, available internationally. It was, it was hashtag, very, inter- hashtag international. Genuinely, it, I, I was very pleasantly surprised by all of the different things I learned in that role. So I was like, okay, so I can do this now. Um, and other than that, I'm still making film. I'm going to Paris, so if you just want to hang out with me for a couple of days, I'll be in Paris over Christmas. Oh, so, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's I'll something. Come. I mean, I'm not have a croissant for the rest of the oh, year. Share a baguette. Yeah, for the rest of the year, you <laughs> will probably see me bumming around Paris. There will be no family stuff because I'm gonna be cancelling Christmas. I cancel it every other year when I don't have my kid and I go on oh. vacation somewhere. Um, and with everything that's happening in Paris, it seems like a sensible distance, and I can. Didn't get... they make a Netflix thing about um, Phil Collins's daughter in Paris? Let's do a remake and do Remy in Paris. The actress in it is um, Phil Collins's daughter. Really? No way. I think so. Yeah, Lily Collins. Oh, so I've seen it. I think it was really bad, but it was really. Yeah, good. I heard it was bad. It was bad, but it was good. Like it was like. Guilty pleasure sure. TV bad, but it was good. It like was below fantastic. Deck. Was it, fuckers? <laughs> but you like Below Deck. Yeah, I, I also no, like I've Below Deck, that. but Below Deck is also really good because it's really bad. Like, you don't watch it for quality. You watch it for, like... over romantic attachments. Fuckers, do you find yourself, luxury. like, Googling the, the castmates and stuff on the show while you're watching it just to find out what's I going haven't, on? I haven't watched Below Deck, but I... Will now. It's basically it's basically Love Island on a boat, isn't it? Yeah, and I do, so and I good. and I. There's like twelve to... series. No. That's like six yeah. months of your life. Oh, is it twelve? Oh no, I think you. I've watched like three or four episodes. There's a lot. There's I have to lot. know the ins and outs of every Go single person on Love Island while it's on. I'm I Google it. Have you watched um, this cartoon called The Prince? The Prince. It's on HBO. It's only in America at the moment, but if you have a secret link. Um, you can see it, and it's a um, it's a cartoon, a savage biting parody of the UK royal family. Ah, I see. It's very strong, but it's very, very funny and brilliant. And it talks about privilege. It's basically about all aspects of privilege, and both like how do you how are you supposed to be a normal person in that situation? But it's absolutely hilarious. Camilla Parker Bowles at one point in the Ivy has a shellfish allergy. And projectile vomits on the Queen. So that's what you can expect. <laughs> it's a wild ride. Okay, we gotta go. Um, Buckers is like, don't do the Queen. We haven't got the legal budget for the pushback. Just don't go in on the Queen. Don't go in on the Remy, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. Thank you so much. It's Thank you gorgeous. for having me. Thank you very, very much for having me. And, um, yeah, just thanks. Thanks for being you and come back soon. That's it for today's episode of the Real Work Podcast. Thank you for being with us. This is the part where we remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And buckers will probably tell me off if I don't ask you to please rate and review on Apple Podcasts because apparently when you do that, our content reaches more listeners. 
If you're curious about Real Work, the online membership Improving Women's Confidence Knowledge and Network, head to our website, doreal.work, and sign up for our super newsletter, The Real Worker. All the details that you need to connect with us in any way, you'll find in the show notes. Thank you.